When I was asked to do the portrait, I was overjoyed, happy to be here. You know, I think I remind people that, that I'm on bonus years. So I always say like, me and Kristen are killing it. We got back on track and like just kept it moving. So I was overjoyed and I could never experience any of this without the transplantation. So she was always first and foremost in my thoughts during anything that happened that was like some out of this world opportunity, like being chosen to paint Michelle Obama and having the opportunity to go to the White House and sit down and talk to them and making the short list and then finding out that I was chosen to be a part of her legacy in such a huge way. Hi, and welcome to the season finale of the Infinite Hope podcast, presented by the Living Legacy Foundation of Maryland. My name's Emma, and I'm your host for today. In this podcast, we explore the impact of organ, eye, and tissue donation through diverse voices. The podcast will share stories told in the first person of people who have been personally impacted by these gifts of life, healing, and hope. We hope our listeners will learn something new about donation and transplantation and become empowered to register themselves as organ donors. For our final episode, we were truly blessed to talk with Amy Sherald, the artist internationally recognized for her portraits of Michelle Obama and Breonna Taylor, as well as a plethora of other critically acclaimed paintings displayed in museums and galleries around the country. So, what's her connection to donation? Well, she also happens to be a heart recipient. I hope you are as excited as we are to hear about her momentous journey in life. Without further ado, Amy Sherald. My name is Amy Sherald, and I am a painter from Georgia. My transplant story begins in 2004. I was training for triathlons, which is something that I been wanting to do since I was 14 years old. I had no symptoms. Everything was going great and went in for my annual checkup. And my doctor told me that I had an irregular heartbeat, but didn't think much of it because I was healthy, but decided to do some further tests. So I went into my appointment for my test and we did a echocardiogram. And the results were terrifying because my heart function was only at 18%. And at this point, I still had no symptoms and I was running like an eight minute mile. And my doctor told me that I could not do anything anymore. He's like, you need to be very careful because you could go into ventricular tachycardia, which is like something that happens when your heartbeat speeds up so quickly that it flatlines. And so you need a defibrillator around to save you when that happens. And so half of my identity, you know, was, is formed in being an athlete. And so I was just devastated. You know, he was like, you shouldn't even do yoga. Like don't do anything to get your heart beat up. And I was just devastated. So six months later, I was transplanted with the defibrillator. And at that point I was 30 years old. And I lived with congestive heart failure until I was 39. And then at that point, it slowly started to decline. And before I knew it, I was at 5%. And after collapsing in a Rite Aid pharmacy in Baltimore, Maryland, my doctor suggested that it was time 
for me to be put on the transplant list. So I went into the hospital. I was there for two months and I got out on New Year's Eve, which felt pretty special. I have to say my hospital stay was probably more fun than most. I had lots of visitors and I gave myself permission to watch all the TV that I wanted. And I just used the power that I had because everybody was feeling sorry for me to get little things that I wanted out of them, like snacks and food. And my my doctor at the time would like let me have little glasses of wine and little pieces of cheese in my hospital room to kind of just make life feel better, you know, while you're stuck in this room for for 60 days. So my surgeon came into my room on December 16th and he said, put down that peanut butter jelly sandwich because we're going to see if this heart is going to work for you. So I put down the sandwich and the nurses came in and they got me prepped and I was taken into surgery that morning around four o'clock. I was ready and I went to sleep that night. Like, I didn't think I was going to be able to go to sleep, but, you know, they washed me down with the green stuff. But I was just really ready, and I was really thinking about the family as well, because I think no matter what, as a a transplant recipient, your joy to be alive always has and should stand at attention to the loss of, of the loved one of the family that was generous enough to allow for the donation to happen. So I was really excited. I got into the bed. I went to sleep. They woke me up on the way down the hallway. I was doing a princess wave to all my nurses. I was ready to go. I had a a really wonderful feeling of it's all going to be okay. Twice before, Amy had received calls from her doctors with the news about a potential heart, but unfortunately neither opportunity worked out. Luckily, the third time was the charm. I remember waking up with my heart beating so hard inside of my chest that it was startling and just feeling really thirsty. I feel like that's all I could think about at first was like somebody give me a piece of fruit or put some ice in my mouth because I was just so thirsty. And my friends were there and um, we were a little on the silly side. So they started speaking to me in funny voices and making jokes. And so I have some really funny recordings of us making jokes while I was trying to wake up and apparently I shot the nurse a birdie because he wouldn't take out my intubator tube fast enough and I was like just ready for a sense of normalcy. So I was up and walking around the next day and I feel like I had the best recovery that you could possibly ask for. I had no complications. I knew immediately that I wanted to reach out to the donor's family, and I was hoping that they would want to be in touch with me as well. And before I even had a chance to write a letter, I received one from her father. It was then that she found out her donor's name was Kristen, a beloved daughter, sister, and mother. It was very sweet. And he just said, I hope you know how lucky you are because my daughter was a wonderful person. I believe I spoke at the memorial and her mother and her father came and I had the opportunity to meet them there. 
And after that, I um, reached out to her younger brother and we started an email correspondence that was really special. And I felt really good about the fact that he found solace in knowing who I was and just seeing how I was living my life and all the things that I had accomplished since the transplant. And, you know, I feel like we have a very special bond because of that. Although Amy was able to get in touch with some of Kristen's family, Kristen's daughter wasn't quite ready to reach out yet. But that all changed once her high school graduation came around. I think after some time, being that she was going through her high school graduation, it's like she wanted her mom there. And so I was more than happy to to be there for her in that way. And at graduation, I got to meet everybody else. So I got to meet the other brother and his wife. And it was just, it was really great. So long story short, I finally got to meet everybody. And I'm in touch with her daughter, which feels very special. And that was the first time we met, which was last year. And it's just been a full circle kind of life event. And I feel very lucky that I got a great heart, but it also came along with a wonderful family. And, you know, it's that's a bonus. That's one of the bonuses of transplantation, if you're lucky enough. As she mentioned earlier, being an athlete had been a huge part of Amy's identity up until her doctor discovered her congestive heart failure. So, after 10 years, she was eager to get back into it and rediscover her fitness, but it proved more challenging than she thought. After my transplant, I probably would literally have hopped on a treadmill if they let me. I was so ready to get back to it and, like, had all these crazy big dreams of going to the transplant Olympics and I bought a road bike and I'm like, you know, I I wanted to be superwoman. And it didn't happen that way. One, because I guess I realized that what I was doing in graduate school, which was training like 5.30 in the morning, swimming, cycling, running, it's a full-time job to do something like that. And at the point of my transplantation, I was so far in my career that all of my time had to be dedicated to becoming the artist that I wanted to be and making sure that I got my career off the ground. So I, I work out all the time. I did get my strength back because I remember at one point when I got out of the hospital, I had squatted down to get a cucumber out of the bottom drawer of a refrigerator and I couldn't even stand back up. Like I couldn't use my own legs to stand back up and I had to like sit there and wait for somebody to come help me. So I was pretty weak, but I think like within six months, I just started real slow and, you know, they have physical therapy available to you. So I had someone come to the house and I was ready to do it. I mean, we graduated fairly quickly to walking on the treadmill. And then after that, I gave myself these increments of getting back into shape. So it was very easy to get back into it. But I I also feel like the funny part about it was like, pre-transplant, I was coming from a place of yes to everything. And post-transplant, there's a lot of no's that you have to think about. And I had to rewire my thinking and retrain myself to push myself because I spent 10 years not pushing myself. And I guess the most I've run since my transplant is probably about three miles, but I'm in my 40s now. And uh, when I first got diagnosed, I was 30 years old. So I was kind of at my prime. 
And then I got transplanted at 39, approaching 40. And at that point, I think I just want to exercise. Like, I don't really need to kill myself and like run 24 miles. I just want to be cute and have a nice butt and be able to wear some shorts <laughs> and, and be proud that I have some calf muscle or something like that. Like many of us, Amy was introduced to organ donation at the MVA while getting her first driver's license. I was an organ donor, and I still am for like whatever I can give after going through the transplant and taking immunosuppressants and all that. But I think you don't really understand it until it happens to you. And then you're like, oh, this is how it works. And I think there's a lot of antidotes out there that have people fearful. And even and even now, even though I've received a heart transplant, some of my cousins are still like, I don't want to do that because they're going to let me die, you know? And so there's this misconception. And so like, you know, you have to explain the doctors don't know that you're an organ donor. Like nobody knows you're an organ donor until after there's nothing else they can do. I remember going to renew my driver's license and sitting there and it was like post-transplant and I was waiting for them to call my number and I saw five people get up and they asked them if they wanted to be an organ donor and they all said no. And I didn't want to be like a crazy person and just be like, hey, look, you could save somebody like me. But, you know, I realized in that moment that there has to be a greater education around it and what it means. And a lot of people don't receive that until it's happening to them personally, until the loved one needs a transplant. And then you understand, and then it's much easier to advocate for it. But it's something that is definitely necessary. In 2017, Amy's career reached new heights when she was chosen to paint the now iconic portrait of the former First Lady Michelle Obama, which was unveiled in 2018 and now hangs in the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in DC. When I was asked to do the portrait, I was overjoyed, happy to be here. You know, I think I remind people that when I was in the hospital and, you know, you're not sure whether you're going to make it or not. Like there were other people that didn't make it that were waiting, you know, at the same time and that I'm on bonus years. So I always say like me and Kristen are killing it we got back on track and like just kept it moving. So I was overjoyed and I could never experience any of this without the transplantation. So she was always first and foremost in my thoughts during anything that happened that was like some out of this world opportunity, like being chosen to paint Michelle Obama and having the opportunity to go to the White House and sit down and talk to them and making the short list and then finding out that I was chosen to be a part of her legacy in such a huge way. So I do not take these moments for granted. And although when I was in the hospital and I had to think about my life in a way where it was like, okay, I may not make it through this. And if I don't make it through this, how do I feel about what I've done? And I felt like I was successful because I had stayed true to my past. I did not venture off of it for fear of working towards a career that's not empirical or because I wanted more at that age. Because I always say, like, you know, once you hit 32, 33, 34, and you keep climbing, like being a starving artist isn't cute. I was waiting tables. So, like, people started to look at you like you don't have your life together. 
And you just have to keep your cards close to your chest. And you, you know, I knew what I was doing. I always say like, I don't know what I was doing, but they didn't know what I was doing. So, you know, those same people, like their jaws dropped. I'm pretty sure when they saw me walk across the stage and unveil that painting and then, you know, probably to see me on the cover of the New York times the, the next day. So I felt successful pre-transplant and to have the opportunity to experience all that, all that I've experienced and to become a famous artist before I die is, you know, I, I couldn't ask for more. Like I'm, I'm beyond grateful. Three years later, amidst a summer of protests and movements over the unjust deaths of African Americans like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, Amy was asked to commission a portrait of Breonna that would feature on the cover of Vanity Fair. Her portrait was jointly acquired by the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture and the Speed Art Museum in Louisville, Kentucky. So when I received the phone call to paint Brianna, it had been after a very long summer. I think we all felt like it was a very long summer and I'm on immunosuppressant. So I didn't have the opportunity to go outside and be in the crowd and chant and walk and really like be there in that moment. So I saw it as an opportunity to participate in the movement for Black Lives and the opportunity to work with Tanahasi Coates, who I really admire as a writer. And, you know, the way that they were putting that issue together for Vanity Fair was really powerful and they were really doing it right. And so, again, I never thought my path would collide with Michelle Obama's. And again, I would have never thought that my path would have collided with Breonna Taylor. But I took on the opportunity and connected to her mother and figured out how to make this portrait happen without the model. I did, you know, a lot of research on her face and I asked her mother for some photographs and then I found a model that was about the same height and the same size and photographed her and I made it happen. And I really wanted it to represent who she was to all the people that loved her. And from what her mother says, she's like, Brianna loved to be cute, like she was a little diva. And so, you know, I wanted to put her in something that she would be proud to wear on the cover of Vanity Fair, but also a painting that her family could look at and remember her by. And honestly, normally I don't do commissions, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I've been asked to paint everybody, including Beyonce. And I'm like, I just, I have to be moved to do it. And I was moved to paint Brianna. And I didn't even think twice about it. It was just like, this has to happen. We asked Amy what it meant to her to be able to reach so many people through her art and her personal platform. Um, it means a lot, especially when I see teachers using the paintings as examples in the classroom and kids making work based on the paintings, because that's something that I didn't have growing up. You know, I didn't meet a Black artist until I was well into my college career. And so I find that to be really the most meaningful thing about having a platform is that I can spread the word about organ donation. And, and, and when I do post, a lot of people say in the comments, like, I'm going to change my registration now because of this post. And so it does mean a lot. 
And it's, it's also been something that I had to step away from because my story is inextricably tied to the death of my brother. So we were both in the hospital at the same time. And so he died December 7th. I got my heart December 18th. And so there's always a huge amount of sadness that I feel when I, when I speak about it because, you know, we're both living these kind of situations except I had the opportunity to survive and he didn't. You know, there's nothing they could do about it but there's something I could do about it. So so I do try to use my platform. And then if I don't, I think it's just because I needed to take a mental break <laughs> from it. But I walk with, with my donor in my heart all the time. And anytime I can share the story, I absolutely do. And I remember I had a moment with Kristen's mother where she was like, I'm ready to move on, you know, and I think you should be too. You know, it was like, let's just take a break from this. And and essentially, it was like, let's not do any more interviews. She doesn't have to and shouldn't have to see her daughter on the news all the time just because I'm the one that got her heart. You know what I mean? So um, we both came to an agreement a few years ago that we would just be quiet and everybody can everybody can just be. And Kristen can just be as well in, in that respect. And finally... Because all donors are superheroes. We asked Amy the question we ask all our podcast guests. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? I would want to be invisible. I, I mean, like, I guess because I feel like I'd get away with some stuff. <laughs> if nobody saw me and then I could also disappear when I don't want to people anymore. And oftentimes, I would love to be a fly on many walls in many situations. So I think that's why. I guess it's because I'm nosy. Thank you so much to Amy for taking the time out of her busy schedule to share her story with us. We at the LLF have kept in touch with her over the years, and it's a phenomenal feeling to see how her success has grown through her powerful artistry, which touches so many lives in this country and beyond. We wish you the best in reaching new heights with the heart that made it all possible. And that's our show and the end of our first season. Thank you for joining us and thank you so much to all of the guests who joined us for this season of Infinite Hope, as well as the Living Legacy Foundation of Maryland for allowing us to tell their stories. Remember to go back and check out all eight episodes of this season on your favorite listening platform. And keep an eye on the LLF social media and website for more inspiring stories and content. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast series, please consider leaving us a rating of five stars to help us reach more people. As a quick reminder, if you would like to register as an organ donor, you can do so quickly and easily online at www.registerme.org. For more information about organ donation, please visit our website at www.thellf.org. And remember, organ donor is not just a box you check. It means giving second chances. It means infinite hope.